Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this episode, we've got one of the UK's leading scholars of war, Professor Beatrice Heuser from the University of Glasgow. Now, I first came across Beatrice's work when she was writing about the evolution of strategy. I mean, it informed my undergraduate and master's degrees, and she was writing about Clausewitz. She's also written about Hiroshima, Nagasaki, contemporary warfare, and pretty much every aspect of the history of war. She is a true expert. In this episode, she's going to take us through the most famous battles in history. I think we go back to like the 1100s and work our way through. We touch on Culloden, we work our way through the First World War, into the Second World War, and we discuss what exactly makes an enduring battle, a legacy, a myth that fuels our understanding of the nation-state, can even fuel future wars, or was perhaps so horrendous that it inspires peace. So here she is, Professor Beatrice Heuser on the most famous battles in history. Professor Heuser, hi, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. And thank you very much for having me on your podcast. No, not a problem at all. Great to hear you're doing well. I'm really glad you've been able to join us because I would say this podcast is pretty much made for you, or perhaps we could say you are made for it. You are one of the UK's leading scholars of war, whether that's the evolution of strategy and Clausewitz or the bombing of Hiroshima. How is it that you got into the study of war? By living in Thailand when the Vietnam War was going on, And when we were increasingly worried about it coming across the borders, it lapped into Cambodia, it lapped into Laos, and there were border incidents along the Thai border with both countries. And we were really getting quite worried at the end of the 1960s. In addition to that, I am of German ancestry, and my parents were very, very traumatized by the Second World War. And from my earliest childhood, they would tell me that war was a terrible thing, and that war was just the worst of all possible events in human lives. And therefore, that was something that one had to be very afraid of. And they were in turn quite worried about what was going on in Vietnam. Well, that makes sense. A fascination with war, really more to learn how to avoid it, I suppose. Indeed, indeed. That to be the main tenor of anything my parents were telling me, yes. 
Well, we're here to talk about another one of your expert topics, the most famous battles in modern history. And so I thought I'd pick your brain a little bit and ask why certain battles become famous. Why are some remembered more than others? Yes, battles become famous through the agency of people talking about them, narrating them, and of political forces seizing upon these battles and turning them into something that is to some way to their advantage. And you can just see how that would link up with my own fear of war, the fact that I'd be very worried about anybody making a big show of a battle and somehow commemorating it in a way that might incite people to go on to the next battle. So yes, through human agency, as in fact, most things in this life become interesting or become commemorated through the agency of poets of historians writing about it, through novelists writing about them, through artists painting them, when the event itself might be great or small, it is the agency of those people transforming it in something that can then be seen, read, contemplated by others, that makes them memorable and takes them out of the normal and transforms them into something of metaphysical endurance. Well, maybe take us back as far in history as we possibly can. What could we describe as the first famous battle? The very first famous battle is probably that of Megiddo. That goes back even further than the ones that I was going to talk to you about. In fact, there were a whole series of prehistoric battles in Megiddo that were commemorated in later ages historically. And those have given us the term Armageddon. If you ever go to Israel and you ever see that particular plain, which is surrounded by two mountains on those sides, and then with a hump in the middle that controls the passageway between those two mountain areas, that is the direct link between the Mediterranean and the hinterland of Israel, now Israel, formerly Palestine, you will see that that particular hump is in a particularly important strategic position. And it was fought over time and again in different times of history. And it is very clearly the place that you would continue to have quarrels over. It has marked people's memory to the extent that we therefore find it in the Bible as the place where the latest battle in history, the very last battle in history, will take place. Having said that, it has left us with a particular heirloom, which is one of, on the whole, assuming that in such a battle, the forces of good are pitted against the forces of evil. And that is the most important general configuration that you find in the commemoration of battles, that somehow they're made out to be between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Curiously, this doesn't necessarily mean that people assume that the battle will be won directly by the forces of good. And that's another very strange thing about it. And it comes in particularly with the Christian heritage, in which you have a fusion of the idea of the sacrifice of Jesus as an ultimate victory in death over evil and over death, which is very, very contradictory. But it has left us with one whole tradition of battles that the forces of good have lost, where they nevertheless emerged as the moral victors in that battle. And that's a very strange tradition that you have, for which I have quite a number of examples. Please take us through those examples. One of the most famous that everybody can relate to, I'm sure, is the Battle of Kosovo Polje, 1389 in which the Christian Serb forces were defeated by the Muslim forces of the Ottoman Empire, and in which Prince Lazar of Serbia was actually killed. But through this death, he was almost elevated to the position of a martyr, 
And the Serbs then later became, much later became Yugoslavia, has seen that as a sort of Christ-like sacrifice on their part that must be commemorated and that must be upheld as a very important experience that has to be emulated and that somehow has to be almost avenged. And this avenging side of it is absolutely horrendously, was an important reason for the conflict that started in 1999, that in fact was, of course, the prolongation of a much longer conflict between the Kosovo Albanians and the Serbs over this territory, where for the Serbs, this was holy land, the land in which the blood of the martyrs was shed for the Christian cause. And although they were uh, vanquished, this was the place, a holy place that had to be venerated and had to be kept for eternity by the Serbs. And the very fact that you had a growth of the Muslim population of Kosovo, the Albanian Muslim population there, and their quest for independence was a terrible challenge to the holy task of the Serb people to keep alive the memory and to protect these holy places and this particular area where this battle had taken place in Kosovo. And in fact, there was a very important speech by Milosevic that he made, which in a way triggered the whole Yugoslav wars, in which he proclaimed that the Yugoslav people had to stand together. But in itself, there was a contradiction in this because it seemed to be about Serb predominance over the others. But that's one that people have usually heard about, the Kosovo-Polio battle of 1389. So if you're to understand fully what happens in 1998-99 in Kosovo, then you have to go back to the 1300s to understand your history, to fully see how it almost bleeds through the nation, through its history, to fuel the next battles in future generations. What other examples of this do we have through our history? There were quite a number of other battles. There was a similar defeat a couple of centuries later, a century and a half later, in Mohac, where the Hungarians were defeated again by the Ottoman Empire. The Greeks, of course, see the fall of Constantinople and the battles around it as their own defeat, but moral victory. They're something that where Greeks tell each other that one day the city will be ours again. There's a sort of perpetual memory of this that inspires the Greek national tradition. But there are also other battles, one of my favourite ones being up here in Scotland, is the last Stuart rebellion, the last Jacobite rebellion against the Hanoverian kings of the United Kingdom. By then, a union of the crown had been agreed, which is the Battle of Culloden in 1746, which I am particularly fond on because it has proved particularly mythogenic. It has created quite a number of myths. I'm using the word myth not in a sense of false more the French sense of using the word, which is to say that it is some sort of original narrative that keeps being repeated and that somehow gives you an idea of how you should act in future. It is a paradigm. It is something that has to be emulated. It is something that tells you, interprets the world for you, and at the same time gives you the mission to fulfill and implement and follow something. So myth in that sense, this Battle of Culloden is a particularly fascinating one to unpack because there are quite a number of different myths behind it. The myth that I hear, of course, is that Culloden is the final battle right against the English and the Scots, but that's not the case, is it? 
Absolutely, you're quite right. It's not the case. And that is one of the several myths. So let me start by running you through a number of different myths to do with Culloden. The actual facts here we have to dissect, and this is what we did in these two volumes that we published, my friend Athena Lucy and myself editing these volumes. We started always by the actual facts. And the actual facts of the Battle of Culloden was that it was mainly and above all a religious war in which you had the supporters of the Catholic Stuarts one of whom, James VIII and third, eighth of Scotland, a third of England, had been deposed by his own daughter, who was married to a Protestant prince, William of Orange. Now, James actually had a son by a Catholic wife. He himself had converted to Catholicism. The son was Catholic. He was also called James, the old pretender. And the son, James, in turn, had a son called Charles, Bonnie Prince Charlie again, Catholic. So the actual fight was over the succession, whether it should be the stewards of that Catholic line who should succeed, or in fact, the Protestant line having died out with the daughter of James III and VIII, that had gone to the Hanoverians through a sister a few generations back, who were Protestants and who had taken over England and that thereby also the Scottish crown, inherited both crowns. In fact, it was a lineup of Catholics versus Protestants, even in Scotland, which meant that there were clans that were Protestant, the Protestant Hanoverian side, and there were Scottish clans that backed the Catholic side. So there were Scots against Scots. On top of there being Scots against Scots, there were on the Catholic side, mercenaries paid by Catholic France. These mercenaries were Irish mercenaries, Irish Catholic mercenaries, the wild geese. And on the other side, the Protestant side, you had lots of Flemings, Dutch, fighters. And of course, you had Hanoverians, you had people from the center of what is now Germany. So it was quite multinational on both sides, but the lineup really and the identification was mainly Catholic versus Protestant. So the actual thing was therefore this very important question of succession and about the two religions fighting each other. So what came after that, the sort of the earliest myth was really um, that this was an uprising of the riffraff against the proper established order with a lot of disdain meted out towards the Jacobites who were treated as rebels. So were they seen as rebels or were they just seen as defending their own religious cause? Just marking them, branding as rebels, branding them as people who were lawless was the sort of earliest myth. So basically denigrating them, a myth that was propagated by the successful side, as you can imagine. Then came, almost a century later, Sir Walter Scott. Sir Walter Scott of Ivanhoe fame, whom you can hold responsible for the rehabilitation of all things Scottish in this big narrative of Britishness, of union of the two kingdoms and of the Scotch tradition, because he turned everything that had happened into a romance. And by that made it very attractive and something that was politically not dangerous to buy into. So he romanticized with a number of novels what had happened, this Jacobite uprising, this pro-James faction uprising, and tried to take the political sting out of it by just making it something that was long past, very pretty, but really belonged to the past and not something you could revive. So that's the romantic myth of the whole story. Then came the nationalists, and that's where your myth came in, because it's basically a retelling of the story of the last battle or independence of Scotland against England. And that's, of course, a complete distortion, because as we will have noted, there were Scots on both sides. And this was not at all about a nation uprising against anybody else, but it was very much in a sort of royalist idea that they wanted a king, and it was not about national independence or liberty or anything like this, only liberty of faith. 
So that's the nationalist view. And quite interestingly, that could be seen all the way up to the end of the 20th century. I remember the earlier museum that there was that the National Trust of Scotland created in that place, which was all about the heritage of the Gael, either the Scottish Celtic heritage that had been defeated there and how one had to make it live on by still listening to the Gaelic language and things like that. A terrible deformation of the whole story. Then there was another myth, which was the working class myth, which was the myth of how this was all poor working class people or the poor peasants, the cotters, very poor people who had been ruthlessly instrumentalized by their various lairds, their lords, many of whom were just a completely different class, Anglo-Norman lords who'd held land in Scotland for a very long time, and how these poor cotters had no idea what was going on, some of them not even speaking English anything, not understanding what this is all about, but just loyally following their laird because that's what they had to do. Otherwise, they would have lost the territory that they held in fief from their land, from their lords. There is a beautiful example of this in a film, if you ever can get to see it, a fantastic film of the 1960s. 60s made by somebody called Peter Watkins, in which you have, it's a black and white film that was commissioned by the BBC at the time. And in this film, you have the fictional element of a reporter, a war reporter going to the battlefield and interviewing people on both sides as to what they think the battle is about and why they're fighting and what is this all about. And then actually commenting on the battle itself, fascinatingly well done because you're the first you have this leap of faith, you have to understand what earth is going on. You have a war reporter supposedly looking into a camera while the Battle of Culloden is being filmed. But very quickly you get the hang of it and you find it very credible because it then homes in on all these individuals people who've been mobilized by their lords and have no idea what's going on. And he goes up and says, you know, and when did you last eat? And they will say something in Gaelic, which sounds very beautiful, but it when translated by a third person, the interpreter says, we haven't had anything to eat for the last 48 hours. Because in fact, one of the things that happened was that they were cut off from their supply trains and the poor soldiers themselves had not been fed. And they've been camping out in the rain while Bonnie Prince Charlie spent that night in the comfort of Culloden House, which was a sort of small palace in the area owned by the local landlords. Um, a very comfortable, warm place. So classically, the sort of distinction between the upper classes who were doing well, and then, of course, Bonnie Prince Charlie ran away like a rabbit being pursued by, I think there's poetry about this as well, that is very working class inspired, while the poor chaps on the ground had to fight it out, had to slog it out, and were killed in the process and were maimed in the process. And if they were not killed or maimed, they were captured and then deported to Australia. So that's the working class myth of that whole story. So you see all these different types of interpretations when the reality was one of this religious divide in particular. Yes, not quite the romanticism there that you depict of Walter Scott, I suppose. Do you think it's easier when you romanticise a war, a battle, a conflict, to then turn it towards nationalist tendencies? Well, the romanticism was supposed to take the sting out of it. And there was supposed to be an element of reconciliation with the other side in the, you know, the artistic experience of the romance, which could be through painting, which could be through music, which could be through a novel. And in fact, I suppose the purpose of this, the underlying purpose of it, is to seek the other side's sympathy without letting the sore fester. The sore can turn into healthy flesh afterwards. You can have it scarred. 
rather than just festering all the time by this sort of process of reconciliation. But at the same time, you want the scar to be seen. You want the other side to have commiseration for the scar, you know, to recognize what has happened. So there is this element of this. And it's absolutely fascinating how it very much required the collaboration of the Hanoverian Georges, in fact, George IV and his successors, Queen Victoria was pretty strong on this one as well, to make this work, you know, to make it something that was a mutually recognized thing, but was seen as, you know, heroic on the side of the losers, all respect being given, all respect being due to the losers and also given to the losers for what they had experienced in this context, even if they'd been on the wrong side of history. But more a recognition that they'd been on the wrong side of history rather than evil or the scumbags as which they were portrayed by the very original myth of Culloden that had developed in the few years immediately after the battle, where all the rebels were seen as rebels and wicked and evil and criminal and people to be despised and then deported to Australia if they'd actually survived the battle. So it needed that collaboration. Would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and in my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, I'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Belesquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Actually, yesterday we went to, this is an image I was going to share with you, Glenfinnan. Glenfinnan is a beautiful end of a loch 
that I think originally opened to the sea. It's now closed off, but it's a very long loch. And this is where originally when Bonnie Prince Charlie, who staged this particular revolt in 1745, that dragged on until 1746 when he was defeated at Culloden, actually came on land and planted his standard and where all the supporters of the Jacobite cause united and came together to support him. Now, in the 1830s, they erected a statue there, which is very interesting. It's a very long column, beautifully placed. Right next to it is the the train viaduct that you always see in Harry Potter. You know, the one where you always get a picture of Scotland where the train goes. Yeah, absolutely. Very famous place, overrun by tourists, not at the moment because of COVID, but it's an absolutely beautiful spot. And there is this column that was built with the total support of the British government. It was raised by private supporters, but nevertheless, it was not an act of disloyalty towards the United Kingdom's government to have that erected, but it was seen as something that everybody accepted. You know, this was a commemoration of these dedicated men who lost their lives in this campaign, but it was no longer seen as a threat by the time it was erected. And after all, this was less than a century later that it was put up. So less than a century later, the British government board and the British public as large bought into the romanticized version on condition that it wasn't a threat any longer to British authority. Now, your question was, can this romantic story be turned into new potential for independence? Yes, it can. Uh, curiously, I think the Culloden hasn't been so successful, but Bannockburn has been very successful. Bannockburn is that other big Scottish battle that was won thirteen twelve, a long time earlier. And there you have a Scottish victory. So it's not as ambiguous in the way in which it is remembered or in in which it is commemorated. It's Scottish victory that afterwards was superseded by a long series of Scottish defeats. But nevertheless, that's the one that people cling to as that wonderful occasion that founded the Scottish nation, that founded Scottish desire for independence from Britain. And that was for a long time, again, sort of seen as something that was romantic rather than anything else. If you go to that particular museum that has been created now, it was created, it's again a National Trust property. The current museum there that was put up on the anniversary of the Battle of Bannockburn, the 700th anniversary quite recently, was clearly put up by people who had no interest at all, no intention at all of making this political, and they rather disnified it, which makes it rather weird. And so the people who put that up did not want this to be turned into a statement of national independence, anything like that. They've just recreated the battle and children can play with it. And there's some sort of electronic model that you can use. And there are individual people that you can interrogate, sort of uh, cut out people with a little voice behind that. And if you ask them questions, they will answer why they were there and things like that. Um, So here is a myth that the people who created the museum try to romanticize in order to take away, take out the sting and the potential of this becoming highly political. But in fact, it hasn't worked. It is boiling away. It is simmering away with its political potential that we will be reminded of at every single football match when people sing the Flower Scotland hymn, which only became known, in fact, was only created in the mid-20th century, I think, and it only really became popular from the late 1980s or even later, 1990s, it really came into swing. So there is the potential in that particular battle to become politically very important, whereas I haven't actually seen Culloden 
remembered much in a political context recently. People seem to think that that's sort of the end of that story and they're a bit fed up with being seen as the victims of this, the romantic victims to that. But it's Bannockburn that is the great Scottish victory with its potential for political use. It is fascinating to think, I've never really thought about it, so thank you for bringing that up, this idea that memorial and romanticism can somewhat combine to bring reconciliation and I guess more of a a lasting peace and less potentially maybe subverted in the long run. But take us a little bit more through history, maybe the 18th and 19th, maybe into the 20th century. Do we see these themes of nationalism, of myth, of religion, sacrifice and moral victory fueling the wars of the future? I think the whole thing is still going strong. You know, from Bannockburn 1314 to the present, there is still this element of using battles in a sort of commemorative way. But you've just put your finger on it. It's the 19th century that really done it all. It's the 19th century that we can hold chiefly responsible for this whole tendency in the much muted way in which it was done with Sir Walter Scott in Scotland but in a much more aggressive way in which it was done by the historians, but also the politicians of those 19th century constructs, those supposed nation states. I'm saying supposed nation states because none of those states actually ended up really being identical with the ethnic group, that large ethnic nation that they tried to integrate. We can go through all the different permutations. There were always some problems about border peoples. There were always some problems about minorities. The German Reich that was created in 1871 should have had the Austrians in there if they really wanted to have all German speakers, but didn't. They deliberately excluded the Austrians so that the Prussians could lead the whole show. You know, there was trouble between Denmark and Prussia for a very long time over border regions there. You still have bilingual people on both sides of the border. You have bilingual areas all around all the, the borders of Europe. So the border thing is, is always a problem. It's never properly simply one ethnic nation that simply inhabits one territory. But the historians and the politicians wanted to make it thus. And they also wanted to detach these nations, these states, from their historical background, which tended to be the identification above all with a royal dynasty or a princely dynasty of some sorts or some other identifying factor. They wanted to make them let go of former identifications that they'd had, for example, with a city-state, and turn them into a huge integrated mass with a common story, with a story linking them all. So the 19th century was not only the century of people romantically writing about the past, like Sir Walter Scott, but it was also the century of historians forging the past into particular narratives and of great composers making heroic operas out of these particular battles all true. But it's particularly the historians who have managed selectively to use particular battles as founding myths of their nations. And battles as founding myths are a particularly potent mix and a particularly potent vehicle of having made battles famous. Because of the many, many, many battles that happened in European history, it is only some who have somehow acquired this celebrity. When you ask why that human agency was there for that particular battle and not countless others that were at least as big, perhaps as important in economic terms or in political terms, you will find that selectively historians, national historians who are trying to create this national narrative in the 19th century, latched onto particular battles and turned them into, proclaimed them to be the founding moment 
of that particular nation. So you'd have things like the Battle of Armenius against the Roman hordes in the Totobalt Forest as the moment when the Germanic peoples first hit upon their national consciousness, etc., which is complete balderdash, of course, because there was no Germanic people thinking of themselves as Germans for many, many, many centuries still. But there are many, many others like that. There are many battles like that that then hit retrospectively in the hands of the historians of the 19th century, were turned into great moments of national awakening and of national identity making, i.e. of legitimating a nation rather than a dynasty and turning them into the founding myths of those particular periods. So the 19th century has most to answer for in this particular way. It sounds like it. Do you think that this endures today? I'm trying to think as I go through, and it's hard not to resonate with some of the histories that we hear about war today. The ones that almost bind us. Do we need the crucible, the cauldron of conflict to forge us together? Do we need our stories of blitz spirit in the Second World War to forge the UK together? Or, for example, I'm in Denmark, it's the Danish resistance or the French resistance. That idea that it was all and everyone together fighting as a nation against the enemy and becoming victorious. Is that what makes nation states? I think to some extent there is a special experience that people have in those actual wars. I have my Israeli friends always telling me that in times of war, people are nicer to each other. They will take their neighbours in their car and they will go a detour for somebody who stands by the roadside and needs a lift because the buses aren't running. And everybody just shows much more solidarity. I think that's also what people in Britain like to remember about the Second World War. You know, so many of them claim to have had a good war because there was this feeling of national solidarity and upper classes and lower classes didn't fight against each other, but everybody helped each other and that there was a sense of unity. So in fact, I think that is a real experience in war. That's a real experience. Having said that, to have to project it back in order to make it a common narrative becomes totally artificial, of course, because then it is usually long, long, long before the time that is commemorated in your family, because most of the battles that are then used in this particular way, happen in the Middle Ages or in antiquity or something like that. And yet the national historians have drawn upon them to try to give the heterogeneous group of people a common past to identify with. But is it still uh, important today? Well, in the 19th century, obviously, it was, it was used massively. It was used in the 20th century. And then it was used in the 20th century as a sort of common experience of suffering. Is there ref- references backwards to the Somme, Verdun? Things like that have been very important for uh, individual group formation. But then also they could be used afterwards also for reconciliation. There's a whole tradition of battles being used afterwards particularly in the 20th century for reconciliation, and I've just mentioned the most important of them, probably Verdun. Even after the First World War, there were the rudiments of widows' associations and other groups that began to reach out across the previously hostile divide to people from what used to be the enemy nation to share their grief over their common losses. And particularly Verdun has become the hub of Franco-German reconciliation, after the First World War, that has been used time and again then after the Second World War by political leaders in order to forge peace, to create peace in just the same way, with just the same means, with which in the 19th century, historians used to try to perpetuate conflict and animosity between groups. So if you just think about the Charles de Gaulle-Ardenard reconciliation of going to Verdun together, having a mass, jointly listening to a mass at Reims, 
where the Gans Cathedral had been bombed by the Germans in particularly the First World War. And most importantly, this is an image I'd like to remote. Most people of a certain age will remember that photograph of Helmut Kohl and François Mitterrand at Verdun holding hands, which had a little bit of a funny side to it because Kohl sort of was twice as large and big as Mitterrand, who was slender and delicate and stood next to him. So it looked a little bit funny. But it's an image that people still remember. It's one of those iconic images of that hand-holding. And it was quite important for Angela Merkel and Macron to do the same. They were holding hands. I think they even embraced. And, you know, this idea that the leaders incorporating always the sense of reconciliation. At Verdun, in the palace of the Bishop of Verdun, there is now a center for peace, which has got a permanent exhibition, which shows not only the First World War, but sort of trend then uh, says that the, the big lesson of the First World War would be European integration and would be reconciliation and the creation of what later became the European Union. So you have this whole narrative there of making peace and perpetuating peace born out of battle with almost the same tools and instruments being used as had previously been used to make battles the mainstay of national narratives and nationalism. It can be used in a different way as well. But if I may just continue with one more instance where you've asked, do the battles still stir up the blood today and are they still used in a particular way today? One of the commemorations this year is of the Battle of Manzikert that happened in 1071. The Battle of Manzikert, 950 years ago now, made to be out to be of great importance for the Turks because it was a Turkish victory or a victory of a Turk people in 1071 over the Byzantine Empire. The story, the way it is now told and made political and made a great battle by the Turks is that this was the beginning of the Turks occupying Asia Minor. The way this is used is you've got a film about Mehmet the Conqueror, which has a little bit of a, a flashback and uses this as a story. But it also has, there are little film clips that are shown by the Turkish Minister of Defence and were already found, shown in the Turkish Minister of Defence to encourage people to join the Turkish Armed Forces. And there's a lovely sort of whole clip where you find modern tanks and modern technology, etc., interspersed with little images going back to the Battle of Manzikert, which was restaged by using students at the local Konya University, the important thing about this being is that this now harks back to a big Turkish past of being in Asia Minor, in being in Turkey, and being with people who had conquered that country by the sword almost a millennium ago, and thereby legitimizing the existence of the Turkish state there. Which is quite weird, really, because for us sort of post-nationalist Westerners, West Europeans in a case, this smacks terribly of the 19th century. You know, this is something that we'd have enormous problems politically to present to our own publics. You know, just imagine a film by which the Danes would show, come join the armed forces interspersed with longboats going off to conquer bits of Scotland or, or occupy England and extracting booty and burning Lindisfarne. You know, you really wouldn't do that any longer. The Turks have no inhibitions about this. And it was quite interesting how that was used also in tweets by the spokesman of the Turkish Ministry of Defence, who beautifully said, yes, this also showed, and this, this battle showed, and now the continuity and tradition of this showed how everybody throughout the Mediterranean, from the Straits of Gibraltar, all the way to the Arab Peninsula, 
was happy to have the recreation of that great golden apple, the Ottoman Empire. And you sort of think, mm, there's a political message here. This is not just a story about a particular battle and how it's commemorated. It's a little more than that. And there is the politics underlying this are really quite interesting to follow. Keep your eyes on this spot. Well, thank you so much, Professor Heuser, for providing us a timely reminder of how the history of war can be politicised, either for the reproduction and recreation of more bellicose intentions, or potentially even peace as well. And of course, we're recording at a time when things are flaring up once again between Israel and Palestine, and so it's those stories of the horror of war and how it impacts civilians most intimately that perhaps can be used as a sharing and a truth and a reconciliation between those parties into the future. Now, to finish off, perhaps you could tell us where our listeners can read a little bit more about the most famous battles in history. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, well, they could turn to two volumes that my colleague Athena Leusi and I have produced for pen and sword publishers. Both of them headed famous battles and how they shaped the modern world which is slightly beside the point, it's more how the narratives of these battles have shaped the modern world. They're both available from Pen and Sword Publishers. I repeat the title, Famous Battles and How They Shaped the Modern World. The first battle goes from the Trojan War until the Middle Ages, and the second battle goes from the Spanish Armada until the Siege of Stalingrad, and therefore the 20th century. And those two are cheaply available, I think on various sites on which you can get battles, first books, first hand or second hand. Thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you very much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland. 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.